take our Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. It's where, where we, uh, we started again in Romans last Sunday. And uh, so we'll pick up again, though I'll begin back in verse 1, uh, just to make sure we read the context. I say then, has God cast away His people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left. They seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block and a recompense to them, let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Have you ever known someone who was stubborn? I have. I've known people who are stubborn. I don't know what it's like, but I have known people. I, I have known people who seem to be obstinate, immovable. You know, somebody who gets locked in to a particular way. Have you ever known anyone like this? Have you ever been anyone like this? Because if you're thinking, uh, no, I don't know anybody who's like that, bad news for you, all right? Because they all think you're like that, all right? So, every, everybody understands that, that we've known them, we've been that, and, and what is it that can often happen? We find ourselves in a place, perhaps it is because of pride and ego Maybe it's just an over, overly sensed idea of self and ability. Whatever the case may be, we can, we can absolutely get locked into an idea, become stubborn and immovable. In fact, it can become such a, a situation that no matter, no matter the argument, no matter the convincing that you think you lay down, no matter the proof, somebody is just insistent on, on believing what they believe, or going to do what they want to do, they have their heart, mind, 
set. And whenever we get to that point, whenever someone gets to a point where no matter of solid reasoning is going to work, what is it then that we usually say? We usually have a phrase that that we would then use perhaps in a variety of, of iterations, but the bottom line kind of way of saying it, we might then just throw up our hands and say, well, I guess you're going to have to learn this lesson the hard way. What, what do we mean by that? Again, we, we mean they're, they've kind of stepped beyond that line of sorts and, and have become so hardened that perhaps the harshest of situations, that's what's going to be required in order to, to move them. I think there's a sense in which this describes the problem that, that Paul deals with, with in, in more than one place in Romans chapters 9 through 11, but in particular those last few verses that we read, the, the part of Romans 11 we didn't get to last week, this describes for us the, the, the nature of and the danger of the person with the hardened heart. This can be a tricky concept to deal with. It's tricky because we, we, we become concerned when we read language in the Bible that describes God as actively doing something in the heart or in the mind of another individual and using that language of God hardening them or God blinding them or God giving them eyes so they could not see or ears so they could not hear. Undoubtedly, this is language that troubles us, however... There's no small amount of testimony of this in the Bible. This kind of language is found in more than one place. And Paul has already brought up one of the great examples of Pharaoh in Romans chapter 9, talking about how how God hardened Pharaoh's heart and even adds this phrase, God will have mercy on who he wants to have mercy on, compassion on who he wants to have compassion on, and he will harden whom he wants to harden. This can often cause no small amount of concern on our part, wondering about the fairness or rightness or justice of this. This morning, as we continue in Romans chapter 11, we once again are brought face to face with with this issue. In particular, keeping in mind, Paul's concern here in Romans 11 is to address the issue. If if the nation of Israel has been so blessed by being God's people, and if, if they have been on the front lines, they've had a front row seat to what is the, the gospel, they've seen Jesus, they have, they have heard, they've been the first ones to hear the gospel, and, and yet, though, though there was an initial response by Jews to the gospel at Pentecost, you know, what was a mighty flowing river of converts is now slowed to a small drip. By the time we get to a book like Romans, perhaps somebody is wondering, even after what Paul has been talking about here, some may be wondering, all right, well, what is God's deal then with Israel? What's His plan? Are they really God's covenant people? Or, in fact, have they gotten to such a place, have have they rebelled to such a degree, have they turned on the gospel to such a degree that now God is wiping His hands of them? Is God done 
with Israel. That's, that's what he means there in verse 1 of chapter 11. I say then, has God cast away his people completely? Has, 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 has he now gone to that place where he has set them aside? Now he's done. Plan A didn't work out. So now we'll move on with the Gentiles, the church, and all that kind of good stuff. Paul's response, though, as we saw last week, is an emphatic, certainly not. This is absolutely not the case. It is the strongest word of negation you have in the Greek language. No way, Jose. All right, if he could say something like that. But that's what he means. This This is absolutely not the case. God has not failed to keep his promises. And as we noted last week, Paul's concern here then is to show, once again... What he promised in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. To the Jews first and then the Gentiles. So is this indeed still the case? Is God a God who is still saving the Jews? And so, Paul Paul is is addressing this, and chapter 11 really is focused pretty heavily on the nature of God's relationship with, with Israel. And though that might cause us to think, uh, all right, we're kind of a really specific group of people, <clears throat> and pastor, got to be honest, chances are good there's not a whole lot of full-blooded Jews in the group, all right? So, is, is this really, can, can we put this in like an addendum? Can you teach this like Monday night, all right? Anybody want to come and hear about this? Is this really something we're going to do Sunday morning? And Well, first of all, yes, because I didn't write the book, it's in the book, so we Talk about what's in the book, all right? So yes, and, and it is of a significant nature because really in terms of application, we can expand this out. Paul's question is a good one. And, and to take away kind of the specifics about God doing what he's going to do with Israel, what he did in the past, and what I think he promises will do in the future. It's a good question. Can somebody go so far that they are unsavable? Can they be unsavable? Can they engage in so much rebellion, so much sin, that, that it's as if God has to say, Nothing, oh, that's it, can't do anything else with this guy. And so this teaching, I think, is helpful because Paul breaks down to us two features of what is God's work of grace and salvation. The, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and there's two facets of it. So number one, and this is what we got at last week, God's current work of grace, and this is really the first ten verses. God's current work of grace. Of course God is not done with Israel. Well, Paul, how do you know God's not done with Israel? Because I got saved. That's what Paul says. I'm as Jewish as you get. I'm a believer. And then he takes us all the way back in the Old Testament to say, this is always the way God has been doing things. God never promised that just because you had Jewish blood in you, that that would necessarily mean you would then be God's chosen people. God has always had a remnant. He's had a faithful group of those who believed. And so he takes us to Elijah. Elijah thought he was alone, but he wasn't alone. God had reserved for himself 7,000 prophets who had remained faithful to him. So Paul, in essence, reminds us of this, and this is where we finished off then last week. When it comes to this current work of grace, here's what Paul is teaching, and I think by way of application is helpful for us. That, that no matter the, the, the hard case or the hard culture, God is still saving people. 
No matter matter the hardness of the case. You want to talk about a hard case to save? Paul. I remember having a seminary professor who would always make the comment, don't miss the Paul and the Saul. Don't miss the Paul and the Saul. Don't Don't miss the Peter and the Simon, right? That's That's a good word. That's a good reminder to us. Because the gospel is not the power of me unto salvation. The gospel is not about me doing enough good works so that God likes me, or God doing half grace, me doing half works, so we put these two together and we get all salvation. No, the the goodness of God in the gospel is just that. I am not the one who can save myself. And so we should probably add to this, and I should have said this last week, though there are for sure what we might call hard cases, the truth is we're all hard cases. Because we're all dead in our trespasses and sin. We're all separated from God, destined for eternal separation. God in His goodness is saved. And we might also get into this idea, well, you know what, sometimes the culture can go so far, is anybody getting saved in this culture? Clearly Elijah thought that. My guess is you and I have wondered, what what is the fate of the gospel in a culture like ours? God saves in hard cases, He saves in hard, hard cultures. But then there's a third idea here. Paul does warn of the danger of a hard heart. Yeah, there are hard cases. There are hard cultures. And God is a God who is saving people. And, there, and I, would, I would argue that for sure from our perspective what this means is there's no one that is beyond the reach of God's grace. God's grace is sufficient to save anyone. To save anyone. However, God does not promise to extend that invitation infinitely. It's not an unlimited invitation. In fact, this text warns us that God may engage in activity which in essence is described as a hardening of the heart of the rebel. We'll unpack this. Look again at what it says beginning in verse 7. The question that Paul picks up with in verse 7 is really a continuation of what he said back in verse 30 of chapter 9. In that he said, What shall we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained it. So he kind of picks back up on those same themes in verse 7. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. What did it seek? Righteousness by the law. In other words, Israel wanted to come to God on its terms, on their terms. Israel has not obtained this because their means by which they were wanting to be made right with God was establishing the law in such a way that benefited them, really, to establish the law in such a way that they would say, this is these works, this is what makes me right. And Paul says, so... They've not obtained what they sought. Instead, the elect have obtained it. Then he uses this phrase, and the rest were blinded. Some of you may even have a translation that says, the rest were hardened. Hardened. It's important to note, that is an, that is an action performed by God. In other words, we're not just talking about something that's merely passive, though I'll try and explain that a little more carefully here in just a moment. This is God acting on the heart of the rebel. 
to engage in a, a blinding of them, a hardening of them. Now, again, you may hear that and think, hmm, one, Pastor, that's hard to understand. That's just really unfair. I mean, what chance are they going to have of getting saved if God is going to harden them, if God is going to blind them? That, that seems like God is stacking the deck against them, not giving them a, a fighting chance. A couple of things to keep in mind here. First, the overall picture of the hardening of the heart language of the Bible also includes what I would call the other side of that issue. And that is the way the Bible regularly speaks to the rebel hardening his or her own heart. Again, the best example is is Pharaoh. If you go back and read through Exodus, it's over a dozen times where the Bible talks about God hardening the heart of Pharaoh. And there's the same amount of times where it also says, and Pharaoh hardened his own heart. This is just the nature of how the the language speaks. And it's a recognition that what God is doing in hardening the heart of the rebel, he's not doing anything that the rebel is not first and foremost doing of his own free will. What do sinners love? They love their sin. Sinners love their sin. There's nobody who is engaged in sin and rebellion who's standing there knocking on the door of heaven. God, hey, I, I, I would love this whole salvation thing, okay? I would love it. I would love it to be by grace and through faith, and I would love you to save me, and, it's not, and God, you know, opens up the little, little hole in the door and speaks through it and says, uh, sorry, uh, you're not on the list. It doesn't work that way. There's no unbeliever wanting to get into heaven and God turning him away. This is going to be a hard truth. Are we ready for it? No, say it's still too hot. All right, no. All right, here we go. None of you initially wanted to be saved. No one wants it. What? What do you mean? I mean, what the Bible says. Romans chapter 1. Unrighteousness is so thoroughly dominating in the human heart that it says that I will suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is what I do. It's what I love, my sin. It's only the grace of God that rescues me from it. So the one who is being hardened is not having something done to him that he's not walking into head first, so to speak. It is something in which he is personally and willingly engaged in. You, you could say that it is working like this. The individual who is consistently hearing the gospel and yet consistently rejecting it. That individual is not only hardened of his own accord, but I believe a text like this warns us that hardening could then be intensified as God turns the sinner over to their sin. Again, this is, this is what Romans 1 warns us of. It, what Romans 1 tells us, not only did they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, but then God gave them over to their sinful hearts. I, th- I think this, this is the very real danger 
for the person who hears again and again but doesn't reply. And so this is what he's talking about for Israel. Israel's heard again and again. They've heard the gospel. Some of them have saw Jesus with their own eyes, yet they're not believing. And so Paul then goes on to explain, perhaps the issue being, all right, Paul, if, if God is saving some of the Jews, why, why aren't we still seeing more? Though they, according to chapter 10, were responsible for believing the gospel, and God, God extended that gospel offer again and again, they still have not received it. And so as a result of their own stubborn, obstinate rebellion against God, God has given them over. And, and then, Paul then calls on Three Old Testament verses. That's what he quotes, beginning in verse 8. Verses 8, 9, and 10, Paul quotes from three Old Testament verses. Now, it's a brilliant argument that he uses, though you and I may not think much of it, but the Jews would have. Because Paul is going to quote from the law, the prophets, and the writings. He's going to quote from Isaiah... He's then going to quote Moses, and he's then going to quote David. In other words, he's calling these three witnesses against Israel. He's saying, just like Isaiah has said, just like Moses has said, just like David has said, you want to talk about a pretty stout group of witnesses against you, right? That's bad. That's bad if if Paul can find verses in Isaiah, Deuteronomy, and Psalms about you, right? Isaiah, Moses, David. So that's what he does. He first quotes from Isaiah, that first part of verse 8. God has given them a spirit of stupor. Again, it's a reference. It it goes back to a prophecy Isaiah made against Israel when Israel continued in her sin and rebellion in spite of God's mercy and patience and His long-sufferingness. They continued to to hold up for themselves prophets that tickled their own ears and nobody who would tell them the they wouldn't listen to those who tell them the truth. They, they persecuted the true prophets and wouldn't listen, listen to them. And so I, Isaiah says, God has given them over. God has given them then a spirit of stupor. Eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. That comes to us from Deuteronomy chapter 29. This is the words of Moses to Israel. It's a bit prophetic, saying, this is going to be your situation. You're going to find yourself in a position where where God's Word is being communicated, but you are not going to listen to it. He'd already seen this generation, the generation before, be stiff-necked and rebellious. And so, Paul calls upon this warning from Moses to some of those earliest Jews. Say, this it's, the, it's what they were like then, and this is the situation now. They've heard over and over and over again, and yet they rebel against it. And so God has then given them eyes they shouldn't see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. Now again, you hear all that and you become concerned, right? You think, again, this doesn't sound fair. This doesn't seem right. Just to make it clear, do you know who else taught this way? Remember a guy named Jesus? uh-uh. Pastor, that's not true. Right? Jesus was all about love, right? Didn't everybody understand? No, go back and you read. You read when, when Jesus begins to teach. Both Matthew and Mark give the same testimony. Jesus is teaching in parables, and his disciples ask him about these parables. And he specifically says, 
I teach these things in parables so that they may not understand. So that they may not understand. He specifically says that. John chapter 12, Jesus in essence says a very similar kind of thing. Talking about, quoting by the way, these same verses that Paul quotes. Say they, they hear but they don't understand. They've been given the spirit of stupor. They're deaf and they're blind to it. Again, I think what the text is describing for us is this potential. that The one who continues in unbelief finds themselves with a hard heart. Then he concludes with this, verse 9. David says, this is coming, coming from Psalm 69, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see. Bow down their back always. This one's a little tricky. There's a lot of debate about this verse. Debate about what, you know, what does he mean by this? Here's what I would suggest is the, is the, is the best way to view it. I, I think Paul is including this when he references their table. What is a table? A table is a place of provision. A table could also be a, be a place of security for lack of a better term. In other words, when people are gathered around the table, it is language of life being good. We're good. All's good. All is well. Because here we are around the table, and we're eating, and we're fellowshipping, and, and not, nothing, nothing can ever uh, get, get in the way here. And, and so, this, this is, a, is a way of saying, so let their table, let their sense of security, let them, believing they're okay, let that become a snare and a trap. They're going to stumble over this very table of provision that they think they have. And he goes on to say, let their eyes be darkened so they don't see, and they're, 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 they bow down their back always. So against the same kind of idea, except this time Paul is then drawing in this idea of, so let, let, those, let those who think everything's good, let, let them who've heard the gospel, let them who've, you know, these Jews who think, well, okay, yeah, I, I, I've heard what these guys are saying. The truth is, I follow the law of Moses. Uh, you know, this, this guy with the big hat over here at the temple says I'm good. All right, so I must be good. And so all is well. No, I, I, think, I think we're fine. And so Paul then says, all right, well, we're turning you over. God is turning you over. You have a hard, blind heart. And God is going to intensify that hardness and blindness. And this is going to become your very trap. This is going to be the thing you stumble over. You're not going to see. The, the idea of a back being bent is like an idea of not being able to see. That's how I take it, though there's a lot of different ways which could be, I think. But I think, again, this is the bottom line. Paul is warning these folks about the danger of presuming upon this saving work of God. I really do think this last set of verses, by the way, explains a lot. Now, again, I, I, know, I know we got a lot going on, and I, and I know, you know whatever's funny about what's going on here, uh, temperature-wise, there's chili. It's hot, right? I mean, that's, you know, so you're distracted, uh, some, you know, because that's just a vehicle for sour cream and cheese. All right, so, I mean, we're distracted by those things. But I think this helps us understand this idea of God's hardening of God turning them over to their sin. Because here's the truth. 
You, you say, okay, does that mean that God is doing something so that he's, you know, they're trying to see, they want to understand, but somehow God, you know, puts up a big wall? No, that's not, that's not what's happening. Philosophically, you ready? God not doing something is as good as God doing something. So you can chew on that over chili, all right? Okay? You can think about that later. What, what do you mean by that? So if, if God offers, extends the gospel, and there's opportunity after opportunity, and they hear the message and hear the message and hear the message, but then, at, at, then they, they continue to rebel against it, what is it that God is doing if God says, enough? What if the last time somebody said no? was the last time. What is God effectively doing? If God turns me over to my sin, what is God effectively doing? Hardening my heart. God not doing something. In other words, God not coming in and granting me sight and giving me mercy and giving me grace. It's essentially God then hardening me. These these two things go together. And in fact, these last verses, this quote here from David, I think is an important one. Because it may describe the ultimate kind of hardening and one that may explain a real problem you have. Has anybody here ever had the problem with this? Seeing so many evil people in the world enjoy such wealth and power. Bothers us, right? We'd like a few fireballs from the sky every now and then, right? Wouldn't we? I mean, I know you can't say that in good company. But I know that's what every one of you thinks sometimes, all right? In other words, you're watching the news, somebody says something, somebody does something, whether here or around the world, and you think, maybe not fire, maybe a lightning bolt. I mean, anything would do the trick, right? I mean, anything would get the point across that, that God judges this kind of thing. Have you ever considered that the worst form of judgment out there is the one that lets that person go so that they can sit at their table of wealth and power and convince themselves, I've got all that I need. I've been provided for. I've got a table full of food. I've got a bank account full of money. Or I've got people who respect me and listen to me. That those who otherwise seem to have what we might call a blessed life, could that in fact not be evidence of a curse? That those who are allowed to believe that their very power, wealth, and influence is the means by which they enjoy a successful life is the very evidence that God has turned them over. And they sit at their table thinking all is well. And it's not. Again, I, I mean, I would argue this, this, is, this, is, a, this is a profound kind of judgment. And this is absolutely a hardening, hardening of the heart of these. Now, yeah, you know, I know, I know this, this kind of message, this is difficult, and I don't, I don't promise, you know, that, that every, every sermon, every text ends happy, all right? I just, I just can't, I can't do that. Now, some of you may think, well, pastor, if you got through more verses, maybe you'd get to a happy one every now and then, all right? Granted, okay, that's justified, got it. But it is interesting. This is what we get bogged down on, and this is what we'll close with, all right? 
Don't look at your watch. I know what time it is. All right. What? Man, it must be hot. He must be really hot. Let's do this every week. All right. I know what you're thinking. We're going to turn up that heat. He'll finish early. We, we, get, we get wrapped up, like in chapters 9 through 11, we get wrapped up in the whole election thing and the hardening thing and the predestination thing, and I'll have mercy on whoever I want to have mercy, I'll harden whoever I want to harden, and, and, and we lose sight of the fact that chapters 9 through 11 are some of the most positive chapters in all the Bible about this. God is at work in every tribe, tongue, and nation saving people. It's just he's not going to say that without warning But don't assume because you have another day. That means God's grace will be extended to you again. I think that's what he's getting at, at least as far as we are concerned. So so I would encourage us in a couple of ways here. First, of course, I'd I'd, I'd make a plea to anybody here who doesn't know Christ as Savior. Say, today, today, bow to the gospel. Trust Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead. Ask God to save you based on what Christ and Christ alone has done. I plead with you to do that. Because I don't know, neither do you, by the way, I don't know when there will be another opportunity. You say, Pastor, you're just trying to scare me. Yes! Because Hebrews says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The other side of the gospel is terrifying. It's terrifying. By the way, fear can be a great motivator. There's nothing wrong with it. I don't know why we've gotten to this that we think we can't talk about these things when it comes to the gospel. We we can. We can. They're in there. The Bible warns about them. So I would would plead with anybody who doesn't know Christ that you trust Christ as your Savior. I'll be down front. If you'd like to know more about that, I'd be glad to. After the service, if you'd rather talk with me privately... I'll I'll be available to do that as well. But I also do issue this encouragement to those who are believers in Jesus Christ. One, one, that this is a reminder to us of the good news of the grace of God, that, that because it is all of God's work, if God has, by His grace, given you life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is life now and is life forevermore. And since you didn't do anything to earn it, can't do nothing to lose it, all right? So that's bad grammar, but it maybe fits around here. All right, in other words, this is God's grace, and it's extended to you forever. There's nothing you can do to rid yourself of this grace. That's good news. I'd also give you an encouragement. Though God is hardening people, it's undoubtedly true. That's what the text says. Yes, that is going on. You and I don't have any idea about that. God doesn't give me a list ahead of time. Oh, here are the people, by the way, who have one more week. Or in 2020, here's the list, church, you better work on these folks. All right, there's nothing like that, I don't know. So as far as I'm concerned, who out there cannot be saved? No one. Say, what, wait, what? In other words, is there anybody out there that's out of the reach of God's grace? Of course not. Of course not. You and I pray for the hard cases in the hard cultures, and we pray that they would respond and believe before they get the hardened heart. By the way, this is what Paul's going to talk about. He's going to go on to talk about how he prays this hardening is only partial, and he's going to promise what is going to be a great revival among the nation of Israel. We'll talk about that next week. A great revival one day among the nation of Israel. I believe that's literally true, by the way. And we'll see that as Paul continues to unpack this. But that is the good news of the gospel. 
And I pray that we recognize what is, what is the urgency put upon us to share the gospel far and wide. Let's stand together and I'll pray. After I pray, then this time will be open to you. Father God, we thank you for gathering us. We thank you for time in your word. And Father, though we know that, that some of it is, is hard and there are challenging realities, we also trust you and the work of your gospel. And we pray, God, that you would continue to do that work and may we be the instruments, the tools you designed for us to be being involved in the lives of these who desperately need to know Christ. God, continue to give us urgency. We pray, God, that you would do a work and break hearts, that you would bring life and salvation to those who need to know Christ. And God, use us as you see fit, that, that you might be glorified through all that is done in us and through us. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.